0: A young perspective on hot button issues around the world this is the hub
1: hello and welcome to this year and special of the hub on cgtn greetings from beijing china i'm wang Guan. for the longest time of my journalistic career i worked in the united states washington dc the one question i got asked a lot by my friends from around the world especially those in china is what do i personally feel and think about america and the american people Well, I always tell them that there are at least two aspects of American society that have made a lasting impression on me. Number one, the fitness culture. Number two, the kindness and generosity I experienced from many ordinary American people with that folksy down to earth manner, always ready to extend a helping hand to others, including total strangers like myself. Now at in America, where I worked for eight years, I worked with over 100 American colleagues, and many of them became my very good friends. And I couldn't possibly name each and every one of them. And today, I'm going to share with you two more stories, people stories, between China and the United States. The people who made these stories may not be in the news headlines all the time, but they are making a real difference by demonstrating what true friendship is all about. The lush trees, the ancient wells, the western-style villas. Kuliang is a beautiful resort town on the outskirts of Fuzhou in southeastern China's Fujian province. We also quietly witnessed the friendship between some Chinese and Americans dating all the way back, transcending cultures and politics. Now my next guest is part of this Kuliang Friends. Ellen Messines is a visiting scholar who has lived in China for over 30 years. Originally from New York State, she impressed many Chinese back in the 1990s when she taught English and the Western culture to a one billion Chinese audience on a very popular show on Chinese national television. So Ellen, uh, tell us a bit about this um, Liang story, the Liang Friends. Those are relatively unheard of um, communities back in the day. Maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about what Guliang Friends uh, is all about.
2: Guliang is Fuzhou dialect for Guling in Mandarin. But we all say Guliang because the Kuliang families lived there when people were still speaking Fuzhou dialect. So I went back with my husband. He was born in Fuzhou. And his first, after he was one month old, first, say, summertime, he spent on the mountain there with his family, because on Kuliang, their family had a house. But it turned out that even though we had a picture of it, nobody knew where the house was. People didn't really know anything about the history. Person at the administrative offices said, well, If you ever find anything uh, about Kuliang, please send it to us because we're very interested. We want to know the history.
1: And so she did. And that's when Ling completed the other half of the story.
3: In 2016, we managed to get in touch with him when he and his families returned to Fuzhou to visit his childhood home. They brought some family photos, including pictures of Fuzhou and Kuliang.
1: Li Yinan is a dedicated researcher specializing in Liang architectural heritage. He has assisted many Liang friends in tracing their roots and finding their ancestral homes.
3: Before my research on Liang I primarily study the modern-day Fuzhou because I am a Fuzhou native. Kuliang is a summer resort. Foreigners living in Kuliang were not there all year round, but only during the summer. Most of their time was actually spent in Fuzhou. We found out where the photos of Fuzhou were taken immediately after doing extensive research, but we didn't know where the photos of Kuliang were taken since there was little research on that area back then. So we hope we could help them find the places. It took us seven years, and only this year did we finally locate the exact spot of the house that their family bought in Kuliang, as was shown in their family photos. Kuliang was an early but well-developed summer resort, and the maps available back then were drawn by foreigners. However, these maps only marked house numbers, not the owners' names. Miss Eileen McInnes, after returning to the U.S. from Fuzhou, came across the Kulian Handbook in the library of Yale University. This handbook contained a list of homeowners' names in Kulia. Then we correlated this list with the map. However, the list did not have the name of the owner of the house belonging to Elin's family. When they bought it in 1948, it was already in ruins. They planned to renovate it and make it habitable, but they returned to the US in 1949 before completing the work. So our research process became particularly lengthy. Nevertheless, this list played a crucial role in pushing forward our research on Kuliang, allowing us to uncover the stories of almost all the foreign-owned houses and their owners in Kuliang.
2: Basically, the families that are part of the Kuliang family group, their families have been in China or had been in China for quite a few generations. They weren't just coming for a few years and then going home. They stayed sometimes 20, 30, 40 years. And in the winter, they worked at schools, hospitals, some in trade, some in government. They did their work during the year and then on the summer, they'd all come back to Kulia. So there are a lot of very interesting people who dedicated their lives to China. And they stayed on Kuliang, I think more so than other, other cities. Of course, there were other people in other places who also had a long lives of dedication to China. But uh, in Fuzhou, I think it was maybe a little more so. For example, there was a doctor named Dr. Bliss who uh, worked on the rinderpest vaccine there was a basically what was an animal plague. If the animal got sick with that, they would die basically. And he's the one who started work, uh, research on how to make a vaccine so that the animals could receive the vaccine and live. So he's one example. In politics, the consul general there loved people very much and he had a home on the mountain and on his 69th birthday, we have a picture of him at his birthday party, 1904. And he had invited 80 Kuliang neighbors to come celebrate his birthday with him. Now in 1904, that was not a common thing to do.
3: We have records of 119 houses, and each house represents a distinct family. Of course, among these 119 houses, the information about the owners isn't always clear. They were not just Americans. There were also Russians, British, and some unmarried owners, whose details we couldn't access. So the number is indeed more than 70. And if we consider the actual number of individuals involved, is even higher. The number of families involved might be over 70. We then prepared a report for the Kuliang Management Committee. Today, nearly all the tourist description and historical documentation of Kuliang are based on this report. It was a time-consuming and in-depth research project.
1: You and your team have devoted many years and resources to helping these foreign friends trace their roots and delve deep into the story of Kuliang. What touched you the most during this process?
3: The most touching or amazing thing is actually the connection between people. Our profession is centered on architecture, where the focus is often on space. However, one maxim we were taught during our time at school is that architecture is the container of life. Without people living in them, buildings mean nothing. Throughout our research, the most important task wasn't so much about reconstructing the buildings, as many of Kulian's structures hadn't been well preserved, but about the connections between people. For example, we are very familiar with an elderly lady named Gail Harris. She reunited with a Chinese childhood friend who was born on the same day and year as her after more than 70 years. When we sat with them and witnessed this reunion, we felt it was far more touching than locating any building. Also, in June or July 2023, we accompanied Ms. Ellie McInnes to the site of her husband's childhood in Kulean. The home Donald McInnes bought in Kulean has already collapsed, leaving almost no trace behind. Standing on the same mound where they used to take photos and pointing at the surrounding landscape, look, those are the distant terrestrial fields and that's the Ming River, brought a profound sense of time reversal and was incredibly touching.
2: This basket here has a baby in it. And the baby is my husband. Because when he first came to Kuliang, a Kuliang mama brought him up the mountain because they knew that she was the one who would look after him the best. It's remembering both my husband's trip up the mountain and also our wonderful Kuliang friends who looked after the foreign community here and treated them like family.
1: Ellen, so now looking back, what do you think are the important legacy of uh, the Kuliang story that can inform people today?
2: I've been thinking about that lately because everybody's been talking about people to people friendship. And what, you know, what does that mean? What is friendship? Actually, I'll be honest, I looked in the dictionary. I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, you can feel friendship. It's kind of a a heart thing, right? Um, They said it's a state of enduring affection, which I thought was a good beginning. But I thought it also includes having understanding and respect for someone. And also it involves spending time together with them and trusting them. And the Kuliang stories are stories that include this. They're all stories of people who had understanding and respect for the people they lived with. The Americans and other foreigners had understanding and respect for the Chinese, and also vice versa, the Chinese had respect for them. And that's a, a really great thing, and it's because they spent time together and they trusted each other.
1: We know that at this national level, there's great emphasis on cultural exchanges between China and the United States. What revelation do you think these ancient buildings and the stories of Kulian can bring to the current people to people exchanges between our two countries?
3: Uh, In the process of talking to the foreign expatriates, we've also been contemplating this question. China is vast, and over 100 years ago, the number of foreigners who came to China was much more than what we've discovered in Kuliang. Kuliang is a symbol of or a witness to this history. It was a haven for these expatriates during their childhood. Many of them were born in Fuzhou and even spoke the Fuzhou dialect. We met several expatriates who could do so Strictly speaking, there are Fuzhou people or even Chinese the story of Kulian offers us an insight, is an excellent starting point for promoting bilateral relations or people to people connections. Recalling the good old days and retracing them today is an ideal way to approach people to people relations. It demonstrates to the people of today that cultural differences or national ideologies are not barriers to human connections. In such contexts and time frames, there are no national boundaries or obstacles. This is the biggest revelation for us. On the other hand, China is vast, and Kuliang is just one of many such places. The expatriates we've helped are not just Kuliang friends. Many years ago, we've also helped expatriates to return to Fuzhou and visit the childhood homes of their parents or ancestors who participated in the war of resistance against Japanese aggression and were stationed in Fuzhou. From their photo albums, we located corresponding places in Fuzhou, even finding the descendants of the shop owners whose shops they used to frequent. This kind of reunion is what we strive for. From this perspective, there are many similar places in China where they have left their footprints. If we can help those who wish to return to China to look for the childhood homes of their ancestors, find these places and connect the people who can be connected, It would surely be an exemplary model for friendly people-to-people interactions, because this is much easier than trying to rebuild or create a new relationship from scratch. Alan, there's so much talk about
1: uh, increasing people-to-people exchange among Chinese and Americans, uh, given the complex and sometimes difficult situation we find ourselves in, uh, thanks to the geopolitical winds and headwinds. Um, what does all this mean to you?
2: I've always believed that when people get together and are friendly and honest with each other, that good things will happen. And if we all have the desire to make good things happen, to be friends, to share, to enjoy the differences that will have a good result. And so I really believe that as long as we can spend time together, as long as people from China and people from America and other countries can have time together, that it will be a a very, very good thing for the world.
1: Over a century, Kuliang has been a witness to the enduring friendship between China and the United States. One of the most endearing symbols of this friendship is the giant panda, China's adorable ambassadors to the world. My name is James Ayala, and I'm from the USA,
0: and I am an animal behavioral researcher at the Chengdu Base. The first time I saw pandas, I mean, it had to have been the pandas that came over that Richard Nixon negotiated. So this is back like in the late 1970s, you know, when I was looking for jobs, the first thing I thought of was like, why not go to China? Um, Growing up in New York, I actually have a lot of friends that are Chinese. So I knew a bit already about Chinese culture, and I just really wanted to see firsthand what was going on overseas. The fact that i was able to end up working with pandas was just more of a dream come true for me
1: for 13 years james ayala has worked closely with his chinese colleagues at the Chengdu panda base together they have trained bred and released dozens of pandas into the wild helping to save this endangered species from extinction james i want to welcome you to our program on the hub on cgtn and thank you so much for coming on our show, and I really thank you for taking care of all those pandas for not just one or two or three years in Chengdu, China, but 10 years. Um, what kept you going? Well, I guess,
0: I mean, it's really two things. It's the pandas and it's my colleagues. You know, of course the pandas are these amazing animals and like being with them every day is amazing. But also like, I love my coworkers. We've become a family.
1: Oh, was there a crucial, a key moment for you back in the day? Uh, when there was um, a breeding season or you think uh, the next step will lead to something uh, much bigger?
0: Yeah, one of the areas that I focus on is studying the male reproduction. So again, giant panda males, they don't actually develop really quickly. It takes around four or five years for them to develop. So we always have this one question is like the work that we're doing, how is that going to affect our next breeding season? So it's always just like wow, that male won't be mature for another five years. And then, well, that's 2028. Okay, no big deal, you know, keep Mm -hmm. going.
1: Um, Now giant pandas are no longer uh, on the verge of extinction, thanks to uh, all those work. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that, um, about how pandas went from being on the verge of extinction to now what, um, you know, happily reproducing?
0: (laughs) Well, pandas are still considered vulnerable, And the part that I played and that we played at the Chengdu Research Base of Giant Panda Breeding was to build the captive population. So now that we have a large captive population, we can start things like reintroducing them into the wild. Um, And our having the captive population is like a security, like a bank. We know now that if anything happens in the wild, we have a large enough and a viable population in captivity that we can start to restore the wild population.
1: What is the latest progress now? I mean, are we safe to say that uh, we have a a mechanism in place where they can reproduce enough, they can have enough um, in captivity and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, the captive population now is over 600 animals. Uh, And then that is more than enough to start doing things like reintroducing them. So we've begun reintroducing pandas into areas where the wild population is very small. These areas, the genetic diversity may be suffering, and it's, it's a very small contained population. So that's where we need to reintroduce the pandas to build and to reinforce those groups.
1: I'm uh, just curious how would you describe your uh, feedings and your relations with um, your, your baby pandas, you know, being the caretaker of them all?
0: You know, it, it's, it's really interesting. Even at like a, a young age, you can see their personalities. Some pandas are very bold and will just come right up to you, even as a cub. Some are more fearful, some you need to baby. Um, and when you when you learn that, when you connect with them, that has got to be one of the best feelings. It's like making a new friend. It's like uh, each, each individual is an experience and a discovery for
1: me. But James, how did you get interested in pandas in the first place?
0: So originally I came to China to work with black bears, And I saw now my colleague give a lecture and was really impressed by what she was doing. And she's a foreigner and I never realized that foreigners would get these opportunities to work with pandas. So seeing her really inspired me to get interested in working with pandas. Because I contacted the panda base and I said, look, I have these skill sets. I'm a good animal trainer and I'm a good researcher. I I would love the chance to work with pandas. So we gave it a try and it it worked out great
1: how would you describe your 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 colleagues um, whom you said you had tremendous fun working with and who you described as family
0: you know uh, working with animals it's not like a regular job basically we're 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 dirty you know the animals we get poop on us we you know Mm -hmm. we're sweaty you know we have to stick together it's it's really hard not to become close to someone when you work in those conditions and uh, what really surprised me was just outside of work, anytime I needed a favor, anytime I needed you know, some problems, where there was a health issue, I can just contact my colleagues. They would be there right away and, and help me through all of this. So it's just been like the greatest thing for me to be here with them and, and to bond with them.
1: You must have melted into the unique Chengdu life and lifestyle.
0: Yeah, Chengdu, it's it's a great place to live. It's an awesome place to live. The lifestyle is laid back and relaxed, and the people are just friendly. Anytime someone sees me, like when I first came, if I was lost, looking around or checking a map, someone would come right away, hey, where do you want to go, you know, and just point you in the right direction and, and help you through things.
1: Do you understand their accent?
0: <laughs> little by little, I, I'm learning it. The funny thing is, is when I first came to China, I thought I was learning Mandarin, and then I really found out that I'm learning like Chuang or like, you know, more, more Sichuan dialect than so It gets kind of
1: confusing, which is which. Can you show us your Chuanpu? Maybe a little bit?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I know like, uh, <laughs> Yeah, some stuff. And also like uh, someone from, uh, I was talking with a student from Beijing and they asked me where I was from. And instead of saying, I said, <laughs> you know? And you use the Sichuan dialect for that.
1: How would you tell your American friends about what you do? I mean, these days, there are so many uh, noises out there.
0: The the lifestyle here is very different than the way it's portrayed. And uh, being an expat and a foreigner here, it's so easy. Like in Chengdu, all of the signs are bilingual. The metro system is bilingual. The announcements, it's so much easier to be here as a foreigner than I expected. And compared with other countries overseas that I visited, it's, you know, it's just, it's just easier than people would expect. And I, I, I wish more of my friends could come visit. Part of the problem is, is you know, it's, it's pretty far. But uh, I think people in the U.S. don't really understand how the lifestyle is here and would be really shocked and surprised to see how easy it is to be here.
1: How do you look at this panda diplomacy between China and the United States? And, you know, using panda as uh, gestures of goodwill?
0: With globalization now and all of these global issues like climate change, we no longer live in a vacuum, right? One country can't exist and one country can't solve all of these issues on their own. So when you take a species like the giant panda that has this you know, massive global appeal, right? We can relate and use them for launching grounds for other things, like you said, diplomacy and talking about things like climate change. People in America love giant pandas. What are their actions in America that are affecting the survival of pandas in China? Well, pollution, climate change, all of these things are factors that are all linked together. So the point that having a panda as a talking point for, like you said, diplomacy and these global issues, I think it's the perfect thing for us to do. We can all agree pandas are cute. We can all agree pandas are special. And we can all agree that having pandas makes the world a better place. So what are some other areas that we can discuss? And then how can we work together to solve these problems? Um, In that, with those ideas, pandas are a unique species that can kind of be a gateway to these other discussions.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you so much for all your work.
0: Thank you. (laughs) It's been great talking to you.
1: Really touching stories and kudos to them all. Once again, reminding us what friendship is all about between China and the United States. And that will do it for this edition of the Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guan in Beijing. I'll see you again soon.
0: With a history of 5,000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folktales.
3: Once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh month, all the magpies fly
2: up to heaven and form a bridge.
0: So many amazing worlds to discover.
2: I want a new palace, said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese
3: folktales retold for audiences today.
2: Well, will you marry me? He asked.